All right, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, night. We thank you for just the, uh, the realities of your goodness, of your, your loving kindness towards us, your grace. We thank you that um, you are boundlessly good toward us. Pray that this, uh, this evening, as we continue to, to look through uh, your word, that uh, you would be magnified, uh, that we would be uplifted and drawn closer to you. We thank you that uh, you have given us your, your living and active word, a word that can change us, that uh, can conform us, convict encourage and all those things that it that it does we just thank you that uh, you are so good in those things pray all this in jesus name amen all right turn back over to first peter chapter one and we'll do a little bit of a just a recap from this morning we started this morning to look through Peter's message to these scattered believers, and really the, the message that we, we looked at is, is a message of having the proper perspective in our distress. Um, this is what he is directing these believers to do. He's directing these believers to worship God, to worship God for who he is, and that is uh, demonstrated in what he has done. So he is calling these, uh, these individuals to Praise God along with him. He he doesn't do this via a command. He does it via um, a statement. And the statement's in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. And then from there, he goes into all that God has done. So in this, he invites us as well to worship God. And by way of reminder, these believers, they're, they're, they're scattered. They have experienced persecution. Uh, we looked through some of the passages this morning. They're experiencing persecution for their allegiance to Christ, for the reality that they are believers. And then Peter also has in some sections within the book that it's more general. And so when we looked at it this morning, we were looking at uh, trials, distresses, those type of things in a more general sense uh, as, he, as he deals with both of those throughout the book. So when we think about different uh, trials, distresses, and those type of things in life, I, I made a distinction this morning that I just want to make sure that uh, I, I carry through this evening, and I made a distinction between pressure and stress. Uh, pressure, I defined it as that which uh, a sovereign, loving God brings into our lives in order to mold us and shape us. So pressure is of God. It is uh, through his providential hand, whatever it may be in our lives, and then I define stress as our reaction to the pressure that God provides. Uh, stress is when we don't correctly respond to what God has brought into our lives. Uh, that can be seen in uh, when we, we question God, or it can be seen in the reality of uh, we, we might lash out or question, get... Um, depressed or whatever it may be, but those are all 
the wrong reactions to the pressure that God brings in our lives. And as we look through the, the various passages this morning throughout the book of First uh, Peter, we see various sections where he brings up the reality that the pressure that is brought about is from God and it is for a purpose. And so he deals, that, he deals with that as he goes through the book, but he begins with this section on just magnifying who God is, recalling all that God has done in salvation, uh, and, and again, inviting them in to worship God. And I used as an illustration this morning, and, and we'll pick up with that again uh, this evening, it was the illustration of you know, pushing through the, the thicket or climbing up a, a steep slope, rocky slope, and it's, you know, it's difficult, it's tough, there's, there's pain, there's desire to, to quit or whatever it may be. But Peter is, is bringing these believers past that, past that rocky slope or through that thicket to a place where they worship God. So really what, what Peter is saying here, what I, what I summarized as, when life is difficult, praise God, or when di- life is difficult, worship God. And that's where he's bringing them right off. And then he'll develop some other things as he goes through his letter. But right in the beginning, he's calling them to remember who God is, to reflect upon all that God has done for them, to trust fully in the, in the character of God. And we, uh, we started through some of the, the sections this morning, but as I was uh, preparing this afternoon, I was thinking through a number of different verses in uh, a book that I've been reading. So I just wanted to read a read a, a quote from Paul and then a section from a book that I've been reading. Uh, so Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. He says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our, order, our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond the all comparison. While we look not on the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are not seen are for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then I've been reading through a book. It's by a guy, a Puritan named uh, Thomas Brooks. Uh, it's called the uh, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices, and he goes through a bunch of different, um, basically, schemes of Satan or of the flesh that draws us away uh, to sin. And he, in one of the chapters, he's talking about how affliction is used, and our flesh wants, you know, pressure that pressure. We want to lash out. We want to quit. We want to do those things. And and he writes this and. Basically, each section, he, he gives the, what the device is, he defines it, and then he gives remedies of how to combat that. And so this is basically the summary of his device, and they all start off the same way. He says, solemnly to consider that all afflictions which befall the saints only reach their worst part. They reach not, they hurt not their noble part, their best part. And all shall... And who shall harm you if you be followers of that which is good, says the apostle. That is, none shall harm you. They may thus and thus afflict you, but they shall never harm you. The Christian soldier shall ever be master of the day. He may suffer death, but never conquest. And then just a little bit down from there, he says, So afflictions may kill us, but they cannot hurt us. 
They may take away my life, but they cannot take away my God, my Christ, my crown. And he's making a distinction there between uh, afflictions. He, he deals with uh, the reality that afflictions do cause pain. They do cause loss. They do cause hurt. They are difficult. But he says, in the grand scheme of things, they can never harm. And he's using harm as saying harm in the, the, the ultimate sense of they cannot harm us and that there's nothing that these afflictions can do or anything like that that will separate us from from God, from Christ, he says. So I just I thought that was really good when I read that this this last week that you know there's so much that can come at us, but there's nothing that can remove us from the love of God in Christ. So we started through this morning some of the uh, the foundational truths that he puts out there to direct us in our worship of who God is. And we looked at a few this morning, and we'll, I'll, I'll recap uh, those briefly, and then we'll finish them off. So first we looked at the, the origin. Um, this is in verse 3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he talks about, he starts off here with who God is, that God is, he is blessed. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of honor. He is worthy of our affection. And it is this God who is the one that also pours forth all blessings. And I, I brought up that, that passage in James that I really like, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So we started with the, the origin, that God is the origin of blessings, that God is the origin of what is good. He is the one that brings those, thing about, those things about. And then we looked at the, the drive. And this is what Peter writes here is God's great mercy. It is God's great mercy towards us, that mercy which we did not deserve, that God is not obligated to give, but is that great mercy toward us, His compassion, His loving kindness, that brought about God's plan of salvation, that brought about the, the reality that God is taking care of our greatest need. And as we looked at it, I... I said, I said this this morning, and I'll recap it. It's, it's God's mercy of, is of a, such an amazing kind, of such profound quality, that He, before the foundation of the world, set a plan in motion to save wretches like us. God's mercy is of such a great quality that it has transformed enemies to children, and it's children who can now cry out, Abba, Father. The more and more we receive God's grace and mercy, the more we tend to see our own sinfulness, and the more we understand that we need God's great grace and mercy. It is in trials that God often reveals our great sinfulness. And so we need more of God's mercy. We need more of God's grace. And then we started on the, the third one, which is the, the accomplishment. It is what did God accomplish through his great mercy. And that is that he caused us to be born again. So this is the new birth. And we, we started on this one this morning. But this is God's work in creating in us new life. He has given us new birth. 
And as Peter, or not as Peter, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, that we were dead in trespasses and sin. So there's no spiritual life there, and God brought about spiritual life where there was no spiritual life. And I touched upon it uh, briefly this morning. When we think of the new birth, we probably uh, most readily think of the exchange uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus says, Marvel, uh, marvel not, you must be born again. And in that passage, we see that Jesus compares this work of being born again to uh, the work of this. Well, he says it's the work of the Spirit, but he compares it to the wind. And you can see the effects of the wind, but you don't know the, how the wind got there, but you can see what it does. And so he's talking about the, the new birth there, the work of the Spirit to create new life within us. And it's a work of the Spirit that you can see the results. Uh, there's a transformation, there's a change. Paul also calls this um, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter five. He says that we are we are a new creation. We are made new in Christ. That the old things have passed away. And as we look down further in First uh, Peter, we see that we are born again, not of a seed which is perishable but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding Word of God. So we are made new by the Word of God. So that's where we, we left off this morning, and I just want to read the, won't read the, the whole passage again, but I'll read this section again, and then we'll continue on with the, the final four points. So starting in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And uh, I mentioned this morning that that sentence continues down to verse 12, but we'll just focus on that, uh, that portion this, this evening. So the next thing we see is that we are caused to be born again. And he says, to a living hope. So we are born again to a living hope. And it's an interesting term that he uses, he uses here, the, the, the terminology of a living hope. Uh, it's, vi it's viable, it's, it's vibrant, it's alive. It's in opposition to a, a hope that the world offers, which would be a dead hope. Uh, really no hope at all. And so it is a, it's a living hope. And when we think of how the scriptures use the word hope, uh, it's often much different than what we would see that our, our culture uses. The term hope is often used for something that is, that is wished for or desired. But the way that the, the scriptures use that terminology, it is something that is, that is sure. It is, it is steadfast. It is a guarantee. So this living hope is something that is a guarantee for us, and it's a guarantee because of the one who guaranteed it. It's because God has guaranteed it. It is a hope, a sure thing that we anticipate. So it's really, a, it's, hope is really a, a joyful anticipation of a longed-for reality, I guess is, is a way we could define it. We're looking forward to that which God has promised that he will do at which he promised that he will bring forward. 
And like I said, this, this hope is so sure because of the one who is able to carry it forward, the one who is able to bring us to glory. So it is a future certainty based on his great work. And this is one of those realities that is, is certainly sure grounds for us to praise God, to Again, have that, like I talked about this morning, have that long view, like up on top of the mountain, you're out of the, the rocky slope, and you look out and you have that long view. You're not looking at the, the slope that you just came up or thinking about those difficulties or the thicket that you've just pushed through, through, but you have that long view looking down the road to what God has promised, to what God has uh, guaranteed will be those, uh, belong to those that are in Christ. And if you if you think of, the book of Hebrews, in uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews, that great, uh, what's called the, the Hall of Faith, it's many there, that's what they had. They had that hope, it says that they look for a city whose builder, you know, they're, they're looking down the road for what God was going to do. They had a hope in God. So again, this, this hope is in contrast to what the world offers. Everything that's in the world is it's ever-changing, it's fickle, it fades. It's unreliable, but the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that God brings, this living hope, is based on a one who is ever faithful to us, even though we are not faithful to him. So it is based on his faithfulness, his goodness, his promise, and not anything uh, of this world. As I was thinking through this, this hope, I thought of um, a few passages, and I have those in my notes here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, 13 to 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given to us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view that's not the right verse. I skipped the page somewhere. Hold on. That's for the next section. Well, anyways, it's a good verse. <laughs> yeah. So we are we have uh, that sh we have a surety. I can relate it to what we just said, but I'm not sure why I had it there because it's really talking about the inheritance. So I thought I had that later on in my notes. But we have uh, a surety because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So we have that surety, that pledge that God will carry forth what He has promised. And then in the book of Hebrews, we have. The reality that God has made a promise, that God has pledged, He has promised, God who cannot lie, who cannot change. Uh, and He says this, He says, uh, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. 
In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. So we have, uh, I like how he says it there, we have, a, we have a sure hope as an anchor, right? It's, it's steadfast. The, the anchor is going to, it holds the, the ship from moving about. It holds it sh- secure. And we have that steadfast hope based on the promise of God, uh, God who cannot lie, and God who promised. So we have the, the, the origin the, the drive, which is God's mercy, the accomplishment, the new birth. The result is a living hope. And next he, he develops what the means of this is. And he says, he writes this, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this sure hope we have, this new birth that we have, all of this uh, done by the mercy of God, that brings about new life is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, it says, But God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. And then in Romans, we know... Romans chapter 6, it is the work of the Holy Spirit that identifies us with Christ, that unites us with Christ such that in his death we die, and in his resurrection we live. So it is this uniting with Christ that gives us new life, that brings about freedom from sin, freedom from slavery to sin, and brings about in us a new life. If you read through First uh, Corinthians chapter 15, it's one of the, the greatest passages, greatest sections of Scripture on the resurrection. Paul says so much in there. But in that section, he, he writes this, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So one of the, the key doctrinal points of the, the resurrection, doctrinal truths that we get from the resurrection, is the reality that the resurrection frees us from slavery to sin. As, as Paul writes there, if there is no resurrection, you are still dead in your sins. So the resurrection, that identification with Christ, that work of the Holy Spirit, it brings about in us that new life because we are identified with Christ. And one more passage on the resurrection, just because it's a passage that I really like, uh, the beginning of Romans chapter 1. Uh, Verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this, Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, 
was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus our Lord. Uh, Jesus Christ our Lord. I just love how he says there that he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. So the resurrection, a uh, very important doctrine, and, and Peter hits upon it here, and he even does it in, in, in an emphatic way, right? Resurrection from the dead. The, the term resurrection implies from the dead, but he adds in there from the dead to make it emphatic that this resurrection from the dead makes it possible that we have new life, that we have a living hope, that we have salvation. And Jesus is declared powerfully to be God through the resurrection. Uh, next we see the, the goal. And the goal is to an inheritance. So I'll back up and read the whole sentence, not the whole sentence again, but the, uh, the main drive. He says, who according to, the, to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So what is this, what is this, what is this uh, inheritance that he's talking about? Uh, he gives us a bunch of descriptions to, to start. It's incorruptible, meaning that it is not subject to decay or to spoiling. So it's free from the effects of death and decay. It's undefiled, meaning it's not, it's not polluted, it's not impure, it's not subject to impurity. Uh, unfading, meaning it's unfailing in its beauty, it's not subject to the ravages of time. And this, uh, this term unfading here is, is used for uh, flowers at time in the scriptures where the flower fades away, it's subject to time, its beauty fades so the inheritance that he has in view is not, uh, it's not subject to decay, it's not subject to impurity, it doesn't fade or fail. And then the last one he gives us is that it is being reserved. So God is guarding over it, God is keeping watch over it, and it is God is the one that is giving the inheritance. So he guards it, he keeps it. In the Old Testament, the, the inheritance of the, of the Jews was typically, we see that in the form of, of passages that are referencing the land. So it's a, the, an idea, the idea of God giving an, an inheritance is, is pretty common in the scriptures. So in the Old Testament, it's primarily with the, the land that is being given. And we get into the, the New Testament it's developed further that this inheritance, this inheritance that believers obtain is a heavenly inheritance. It's an inheritance with God in heaven. So when we, we reflect on the descriptions that are given here, uh, we can see that this inheritance that we get from, that we receive from God, that God gives us in his Greatness, it can't be stolen, it can't be plundered, it can't be taxed, 
It doesn't suffer from the effects of inflation. It doesn't lose its value. It doesn't need to be repaired. It doesn't need fixing. Like every other inheritance that someone might receive, right? The inheritances of men or of people all suffer from those things. But the inheritance that we have from God does not because it's a heavenly inheritance. It's not of this world. It doesn't suffer from sin. And really, as, as Peter is walking through this, this passage, this is all these descriptions of who God is. This is really the kind of the culminating description. And if you think about the reality of how this is the, the culminating description that he is using, again, he's, he's writing to people that are dispossessed. They are under uh, trials. There's pressure that God has applied. There might be the, the temptation to uh, respond in a sinful way, but he is directing them to, again, to worship, to live past the, the thicket, the circumstances of life, and to worship God. And really, again, the reason I call it the long view is because it's looking the long view to that future inheritance. So this is that grounds for which these believers that are suffering, they have to look forward to a life where there is no corruption or pain. They, have a, they can look forward to their heavenly inheritance where they will be with Jesus without sin. A place that, uh, you know, if you look in the end of Revelation, right, there's, there's, no more, there's no more crying, there's no more pain. So they're looking, looking ahead, looking forward to the time when those things no longer exist. So this, this inheritance is not, uh, it's not physical like the, like the Jews were given, the land. In those things, it is a heavenly inheritance. And as I was thinking through this, this particular, this idea, it uh, reminded me of, of what Jesus says in Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. Uh, he says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's looking ahead to that future inheritance that we have from God. I also thought of uh, Colossians chapter 3 where he says, set your affections on things above. Right? The, the, the same idea there is to have that, that confidence, that trust in the reality that God will carry forward that which he has promised. And really, that's one of the essences of uh, the Christian life, is taking God at his word and living by it, and living in according, accordingly. And it's also one of those things that I was talking about this morning. It, it, at times, we just have to have the word of God sit upon us and just meditate on it, think about it. And these uh, believers that were scattered, or, or we, if we are suffering in any way, 
Think about God's greatness. Think about who God is and think about the sure future inheritance that we have where we get to be with him. Paul writes this in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul also writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the human heart, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So we have something amazing to look forward to. Uh, this, life is, this life is not all that there is. The struggles in this life, the difficulties in this life, the aches, the pains, all of those things, they, they go away. And God says, Again, through Peter in this passage, when life is difficult, when there's difficulty, uh, praise God. Praise God for who he is, for what he has done. So that was the, the sixth one, the, the inheritance. And then the last one here is assurance. And we see this in the, the last part of verse 5. And so the, the basic structure of, of how this is written by Peter is all these first terms all line up under who God is, right? It is according to God's mercy. It is God that causes us to be born again to a living hope uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope so we can obtain inheritance. Uh, now when we get to the end of verse 4, he's talking about the, 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 the inheritance that is reserved in heaven, he says, for you. And now he's going to add some descriptions of, of who we are, and that's why I call this one assurance, because these ones here focus on, focus on us, although they still are focusing on what God is doing. So not only do we have an inheritance that is kept by God, uh, we're not subject to the, the corruptions of sin, uh, but it says we are protected by God. So verse 5 who are protected by the power of God. So we are protected by the power of God. And what does Peter mean by this? Are we, we know it's not protected in the sense that there's not going to be difficulties. You know, he's, he's dealt with that throughout the letter, right? They, he's writing to those who are suffering. They're suffering persecution. And by way of reminder, we, we know from um, Hebrews the book of Hebrews and James, that some of these people that were suffering in the early church, that they had lands seized, um, they, had, they were getting uh, basically ripped off by rich landowners because they would be scattered, they'd find a job, they'd work for somebody, and they weren't getting paid, uh, so they were starving, couldn't feed their families, and we know that some of them were being dragged off into court. So, you know, there was all kinds of, you know, awful things happening, and we can also think, too, of the, you know, Peter wrote this when Nero was the emperor, and Nero did, you know, he was, he didn't, uh, there wasn't like edicts out there to, 
get rid of all Christians, but Nero certainly caused caused the death of, of many believers. So there's there's a lot of persecution going on. And they are reminded that they are kept by God. So they're not kept by God from these pressures that God would add to their lives, right? Because the pressures are there so that God can shape them, so that God can mold them. But they are kept, in a sense, is that they are protected to the end. They are guarded to the end in the sense that the work that God has begun in them, the work that God has started, that God will bring that to the culmination. And if we look down through, the, through the, this passage, this inheritance, he picks up the idea later, and I didn't say this when we were doing the inheritance, but I just thought of it now, but he picks up later that this inheritance is the idea of our full salvation, right? We have salvation now, and there's salvation in this future, and that's our, that's our full salvation, right? That is when we are glorified, we are made new, there's no sin, uh, we are with Christ, so that is our full salvation. You know, right now we have, we have salvation, we have forgiveness, we, we are in a process of being conformed to the image of Christ, but we still have the, our flesh. So he's, this protection is God's work in preserving to the end. So that's why I call it assurance. It's also called the doctrine of uh, eternal security, right? The, God's going to start a work. God will finish that work. When I think of this uh, particular doctrine, I usually think of uh, the book of Jude, where Jude writes this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. You can see the, the work of, per, of uh, perseverance there, that God holds us secure. It is God who is able to make us who to keep us from stumbling, and is God who is able to make us stand um, before His presence. So this is God's work. We can also think of uh, Philippians chapter one verse six. For I am confident of this very thing that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God begins this great work of salvation in us. As we looked at this morning, it's His great work of mercy toward us. He begins this work and He completes this work. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 38 or 39, but in all these things, we, overwhel we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that work that he begins within us, there's nothing that can remove us from that, so God holds us secure to the end. Our inheritance is secure, guarded by God, and we are secure, protected by God, by his power. And how does he do this? How does he protect us by his power? And he says, through faith. So he carries us along through faith. Uh, certainly another passage that you could turn to or look to when you talk about the idea of faith being a gift 
we see that so much of what's happening uh, that Peter's writing about here is based on the reality that God is at work, that God is doing this work, that God is the author of salvation. And even here, that it is God who carries us along, God who protects us uh, through faith. And as I said in the beginning, faith is, is, is really a process of us reading, seeing, understanding what God's Word says. As James says, it's being doers of the Word and not just hearers. So faith is taking God at His Word and acting accordingly. It's taking what God says when it's when he talks about the purpose of trials and believing that God is good in what he says there and living accordingly and praising and worshiping God. We see the, the great example of this that, that Peter brings forward in uh, chapter 2 when he talks about the example of Christ that when he was reviled, he did not answer back because he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. There's an example of to us of what living by faith is. He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. He entrusted himself to God, the Father, knowing that he would accomplish all his purposes. Uh, so to, to recap, those foundational truths that... that that Peter has put forth those truths for us to stand upon so that we can uh, truly worship God, praise God, honor God for who He is, for what He has done. So that when God applies pressure in life, we can remember who God is. We can remember what God has done. We can have that, that long view knowing that God is going to accomplish that which he promises he will accomplish, knowing that God will bring about full salvation. So the truth that he brings forth is he, he gives us the, the origin of all blessings, that is God. God is the one who has brought about salvation. We see the drive, that is God's great mercy towards us. The accomplishment, and that is the new birth, that God has brought about in us. The result of the new birth is a living hope, something that is steadfast, a sure anticipation. Next is the, the means. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The goal is to bring us to the inheritance that God has promised for us, uh, who are His children. And we looked at this, that this, this morning that we, in Christ, can call God Father. And as, as Peter says, or Paul says, we can call him Abba, Father. And then finally, he gives us this doctrinal truth of assurance that God holds us to the end. So reflecting all these, on all these things of who God is, what God has done, his greatness toward us, Peter's point, again, is to direct us to worship of God and not to get entangled with 
worldly things, worldly thinking when it comes to pressure that's applied in our lives. Uh, and to not, uh, not to get stressed. And again, the, the, the difference in what I mean in those terms is pressure is what God sovereignly applies to us when we trust in him and he works through that to mold us into what he wants to be. And by stress, I mean when we don't respond correctly to what God is doing in our lives. So when difficulties come, well, which they will, we're in a fallen world, remember who God is. Remember all that God has done for you, for us. And when life is tough, we praise God, for he is good and faithful to us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your great faithfulness to us. We thank you for this evening when we can reflect on your, your great work of salvation. Uh, Lord, you have taken care of our, our greatest need, that need to be made right with you. And we just thank you for your, your great work in that way. Pray that we would be uh, people that, uh, that worship you as a, as a way of life. That we would not just worship as, as something that we do, but that we would worship you uh, continually for all that uh, you have done. And Lord, as we think on these things, we think on your great work toward us. Uh, we know that it is only reasonable that we as Paul says, offer ourselves a living sacrifice. And pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that, to think on those truths, uh, to live in a way that is pleasing to you in the midst of struggles and trials, whatever they may be. Uh, for your glory and for your honor. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.